you uh, have brought your Bible, let me invite you now to open it to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 25 through 29, and then we will also read a portion from Exodus chapter 3. Hear now the word of the living God as we read from Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now turn please to Exodus chapter 3. And you'll want to leave your Bible open to Exodus 3 because that is probably where most of the time will be spent. This is the burning bush experience that Moses had in the wilderness. So we're beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, uh, Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come. I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you, that I have sent you when you have brought the people of, uh, out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to this people, or say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Let's pray. 
Father, we pray that you would open up our hearts, that you would enlighten us, that you would give us uh, the ministry of your Spirit to enable us to hear and respond to the truth. May we be receptive soil for the seed of the Word of God. May fruit be produced today through the preaching of your Word, and may it redound to the glory of God. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You visit an average church on a Sunday morning, and almost anyone will do, regardless of the name on the front, you're most likely to find a congregation comfortably relating to a deity who fits nicely within precise doctrinal positions, who lends almighty support to social crusades, or conforms to individual spiritual experiences. But you will not likely find much awe or a sense of mystery. The only sweaty palms will be those of the preacher unsure whether the sermon will go over. And the only shaking knees will be those of the soloist about to sing at the offertory. The New Testament warns us, offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for indeed our God is a consuming fire. But reverence and awe have often been replaced by the yawn of familiarity. The consuming fire has been domesticated into a candle flame, adding a bit of religious atmosphere perhaps, but no heat, no blinding light, no power for purification. When the true story gets told, whether in the partial light of historical perspective or in the perfect light of eternity, it may be revealed that the worst sin of the 21st century church has been the trivialization of God. We now have a manageable deity. And in the front of your building, this quote is given. Why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute, ask Annie Dillard. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently, sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews or seats. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. We prefer the illusion of a safer deity. And so we have pared God down to a more manageable proportions. Our era has no exclusive claim to the trivialization of God. This has always been the temptation and the failure for the people of God since the garden. Pagan gods have caused less trouble than the tendency to refashion God into a more congenial, serviceable God. Our God is a consuming now when you think about that I want you to think along with me about two or three things as we think about that statement our God is a consuming fire that is the substance of what we will be looking at this morning we covered most of the last of it in the last sermon but as you look around our world and you talk to people most people say that they would believe in some kind of God Maybe even they believe in the existence of God, but they don't know him personally. Moses believed God up to a point, up to a point. But it was really at the burning bush that he came to see who God was, and he encountered God. He met God at the burning bush. He didn't know just about God, but he came to meet God. And that's why several scholars who commented on the book of Exodus say this is Moses' conversion experience, much like Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road. So let's see what this famous story of the burning bush tells us about who God is. 
And I think we're going to learn a lot as we look at it. And the central metaphor used here to describe God is the metaphor of fire. Other places, the Bible says God is a spirit. Other places say God is love. But in Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. Why would the writer select the metaphor of fire? And I think for very, very good reasons, as we will discover. The central metaphor is fire because God decides to appear to Moses as fire. He could have appeared as anything he wanted to, but, but, but by deciding to appear as fire in the burning bush, that metaphor is going to tell us two or three things we need to know. It's going to tell us, first of all, that God is a real God and that this God can be known and what the appropriate response is to the reality that God is a consuming fire. First, God is the real God. I'm starting here because I often run into people who, when I talk to them or try to introduce them to the concept of God, always want to tell me what kind of God they like. I used to go share the gospel with a guy named Larry Thompson, and he was on staff with Campus Crusade in Memphis, Tennessee. And we used to go around campus at the uh, University of Memphis and witness to students. And so we would witness to students, and I was a relatively new Christian, and Larry had been a Christian a long time. And so we would encounter these students, and Larry would first question out of his mouth every time was, what is your concept of God? I used to get so irritated with him about that because for the next 20 minutes we had to listen to more heresy than you would. And I asked him one time after we got done, I said, why don't you just go straight to the truth? Why are you asking what their concept of God is? He says, well, I'm going there. I said, but you're way too slow. <laughs> he said, well, you need to drink decaf. Just relax a little bit. But if you ask the average person what their concept of God is, and they haven't read much of the Bible, it will not be orthodox, I can tell you that. Most people don't like to think of God as a consuming fire, as one who brings judgment, as one who shakes the world. It is very clear that most people believe they can believe in God as they want to believe in God, that they are able to basically have the right to construct their own religious beliefs. We in America like to talk about our rights. And so people translate rights to the, their own theology, and they have a right to have the kind of God I want to have. I can define him as I see. You know, people who do that even respect the weather better than that. You know, I might want to believe this week that it's going to be 85 degrees and sunny, and I desperately want to believe the weather's going to be nice so I can run outdoors in my shorts and have a wonderful time. But, but you know what you're really going to do? You're going to check and see what the weather actually is, because if the weather is 40 degrees and raining, you're not going to do that. You're going to have to deal with the reality. And I would think that if there is a God, he is at least as real as that, the weather. He'd have to be at least as real as the weather. And I don't know what else you believe about God, but if there is a God, he at least has to be as real as the weather. And that's what this text is telling us in a number of ways. This text is saying there is a God, a real God, a God who is there. God, a God who you do not create or even tweak, a God who is untamed, who you can't domesticate and use for your own purposes. There is a God who is real. He is other than you. He is transcendent and above you, but you are made in his image. He is real. He is knowable. He's incomprehensible, but he's knowable because he's chosen to show himself to us. Now, there are a couple of ways this text gets this idea across. The first one is with fire. When God appears in the burning bush, he appears as fire, but not like any other fire. Notice what it says in Exodus 3, verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now that must have been a strange sight. It was such a strange sight that Moses wanted to go over and investigate this strange sight as to why the bush doesn't burn up, why it's not consumed. 
And right off the bat, this shows us that though God is appearing as fire, it's not like fire that anybody else has ever seen before or since. Fire is dependent upon fuel, and as long as there's fuel, there can be fire. When there's no more combustible fuel or matter, the fire goes out. The fire is uh, not dependent on the fuel. This fire, in particular at the bush, is not dependent on fuel. This fire is not dependent on anything. This fire has the power of its own being within it. We don't know anything in our world like that, and that's the point. The other way this text gets across is in the name in verse 14 when Moses says, Look, if I go to Egypt and to Pharaoh and to the Israelites, they want to know who sent me. So can you tell me, fundamentally, what's your name? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. Now, it depends on what your translation is. But every translation of that verse almost looks different because it's almost untranslatable. Essentially, when Moses says, what is your name? God gives Moses simply the Hebrew verb to be. We know it as Yahweh. To be, it is a verb. Therefore, the best way to translate this, though nobody seems to do it in any translation I have seen, basically what God is saying is, tell them being itself has sent you. Being itself has sent you. This fire is not dependent on anything. It is self-existence, and it has the power of its own existence within it. The fire, along with the name, was God's way of saying, I have no beginning, I have no end, because I depend on nothing. Nothing caused me, I caused everything. I depend on nothing, everything depends on me, everything. Look at the term I am, and even that translation. This is God's way of saying, I always am. There never will be a time in which it could be said about me, God was. And there never was a time in which it could have said about me, he will be. He is the I am. God is not only saying he has no ending, but that he has no beginning. He always was am. By the way, when I was a kid growing up in the church, I could sort of get the idea of God having no ending, but I never ever could put my brain together and wrap it around the idea that God had no beginning because I would ask stupid questions that most of my Sunday school teachers couldn't answer because I heard that stupid comedian, what was his name? Uh, who created God? Uh, you know, the hippy-dippy weatherman, what's his name? George? Yeah, him. <laughs> I, heard him uh, I heard him do his bit, and so I would ask my Sunday school teachers who created God, and what they should have said was, I am. He's uncreated. He causes his own self to be. Causes himself to be. When God is saying, I am being itself in some sense, I'm not a being because beings are all in this world and they all depend on other beings. Every being exists because some other being brought it into existence. And every being exists dependent on other beings. In a sense, I'm not one more being. I am being itself. Everything depends on me. I depend on nothing. He's saying to Moses, I'm not a weak, local, tribal God like the gods you were exposed to in Egypt. I am the great I am. I am being itself. You have your isness. We all exist. Break the word exist down. X means out of. Is means isness. We all exist out of someone who has the power of being within themselves to cause us to be. Why does the universe exist? It exists because there is someone who has the power to being, uh, being and not just a force. He's personal. We'll, not, we'll get that in a minute. But he has the power to cause everything that is to be. Everything is contingent. Everything that is is derived from him. He is non-contingent. He is underived. He has the power of being within himself. And you say, what is this, philosophy class? 
I mean, you know, I, I took that for two hours, and after one class, I dropped it. No, this is theology, and it's really good theology. Now, what are we to make a, of this? The idea is called the self-existence of God. And theologians like to use the word aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, the aseity of God. That God brings himself into existence, keeps himself in existence. In other words, he always was. There was never a time in which he was not. On the one hand, it's quite a philosophical thing to think about. By the way, it is actually a fruitful thing. Thing to spend some time on, so we're going to do that for just the next few seconds. The most powerful, in my opinion, and rational argument for the existence of God is right here in this text. And that argument goes like this in a nutshell. Everything in the natural world, everything, is caused by something else. No being in the material natural world just pops into existence out of nothing. Something cannot come out of nothing, nor is there anything we know of in the material world that has existed forever. We don't know of anything. That's the reason why my young self, when I heard God had no beginning, said, I don't understand that, and the truth is, nobody can really understand that. In the natural world, everything has a cause. Therefore, the natural world must have a supernatural cause. There must be an uncaused cause. There must be some supernatural being that caused us. Otherwise, you have a miracle anyway. I know Richard Dawkins, the atheist writer, says, well, if you think God caused the world, then what caused God? But you're missing out on something, Mr. Dawkins. If there is no God, then you have to say the world came to existence out of nothing. Something came out of nothing, which is a miracle. Look it up. It's a miracle. That's a scientific impossibility. It's a miracle. Or you can say, well, there's always been something here. That material universe is eternal. It's always existed. That would be a miracle too. We don't know of anything in the material world that has always existed. Therefore, life is a miracle. Existence is a miracle, one way or the other. But the Bible clearly says, the Bible clearly says that it has come from God. Now what I'd like you to think about is practical. And if you're willing to grasp this doctrine, and that's what this is, that God is dependent on nothing and everything that is is dependent upon him, then that will be to you a very humble but liberating truth, if you can grasp it. Very humble but liberating truth. The reason it is humbling is because we like to say about ourselves, well, you know, I've worked very hard to get where I am in life. I've learned my craft. I went to the right school. I came up the ladder. I worked very hard for everything I have. And of course, the Bible comes back and says, yeah, you worked hard with the desires and the talents and the abilities and with all of the opportunities, none of which you created, but were actually given to you. God gave you those desires. God gave you those talents. God gave you the abilities, gave you the opportunities. If he hadn't given them to you, you wouldn't have anything. Therefore, everything you have is a gift of God who causes you to be. And that's the humbling part. It's very stinging. It's almost insulting. It's ego deflating. You feel the pin going into the ego balloon. And we say, no, 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 we don't like that. But if you're willing to get through the sting of it and the insult of it, on the other end is a liberating truth. Why? It doesn't depend on you. It is not you who is holding your life together. It is not you who's keeping the world spinning. You control freaks, along with me, can relax. Martin Luther was constantly talking to his worried friend, Philip Melanchthon. And Melanchthon was always in a knot over something. He was always worrying. Whenever he would worry, Martin Luther would say to him, let Philip cease to rule the world. What he was saying to Philip was, worry and anxiety and laboring under the illusion that you have to keep things spinning, you have to keep it together, it all depends on you, nothing depends on you, and it never has. We have a God 
a God who is the source of all being. But he's not simply a kind of force out there. There are plenty of religions that believe in a divine source of all being. In him we live and move and have our being, Paul quoted on Mars Hill. There are many religions that believe he's a kind of great impersonal force, but the God showing us at the burning bush is not only that he's real, but he's also not a remote reality. He is a God who can be known. In other words, this is telling us that we must not just merely know about God, we must know him, know God. We must not just believe in God with our heads. We must encounter him. Now, how does that get across? Think of fire again. Fire. You, just, you don't just know fires in front of you with your head. You feel it. You experience fire. And it's not just a mental process. Oh, I know there's a fire there. Rather, you see it. You hear it crackling. You feel it against your skin. You smell it. It assaults your senses. That's why when I was a little boy, I was so attracted to fire. And that's why I remember my father jerking me up numbers of times, saving my life from the fire. It's something that attracts us. So when you know there's a fire in front of you, you don't know it just rationally or objectively, but you know it experientially. And that's how you're supposed to know God, not just rationally. Yes, there is a rational element, but experientially. It is very intriguing that the French philosopher Blaise Pascal connected his great experience and encounter with God on the story, this story, of the burning bush. Some of you might know this, but Blaise Pascal, the great French philosopher, had an experience of God which he wrote about. He journaled it. And he took that page out of his journal and sewed it inside the lining of his coat. And when he died, they discovered it. It's quoted a lot. It's on the internet. This thing is everywhere. But this is essentially what Blaise Pascal said about his encounter. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, the 23rd of November, from about half past 10 in the evening until half past 12, fire. Fire. That's what he said, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and savants, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, and peace. That's a powerful encounter he had with God. Notice he evokes the burning bush. He says it was an experience of fire for him. Then he even quotes God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, which is what God says when he was revealing himself to Moses. Then he says, not the God of the philosophers or the savants. He was a philosopher and he had only known God up to this point philosophically, but now fire. He was experiencing God, certitude, certitude, joy. So this powerful encounter he had, the God he'd known about, he was now experiencing. He understood that fire means, it means not just believing in God, but meeting God. Let me ask you a question. Have you met God? Or do you just believe in some sort of rational explanation called God? I have to say something, and I want to be careful here, and there are a couple of shoes that have to drop, so to speak. On the one hand, a big part of the Christian life is holding on to what you know and believe in spite of your feelings. I just want you to know that a big part of the Christian life is essentially learning to tell your feelings where to get off, okay? You got to learn that. That's important. For example, a big part of your Christian life works like this. You know and believe that God loves you in Jesus Christ even though you don't feel lovely at all. You know and believe that God is sovereign and in control of history even though history feels like it's totally out of control and sometimes our life does too. Or even you have to hold on to and believe that you are a weak dependent person who needs God more than you need your next breath even though you may feel absolutely and totally self-confident and self-sufficient. 
So a big part of the Christian life is actually telling your feelings where to get off and holding on to what you know to be true. And that's a big part of Christianity. And one other thing, we all have different temperaments. Some people have very strong emotions and wear their emotions on their sleeves. And some of us are much less trusting of feelings and we're not prone to having these great emotional experiences. Now, I said all that for this reason. Why does it say in the book of Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good? Don't we know the Lord is good? Sure, they say. They're not saying, no, the Lord is good. We all know it, but I want you, the psalmist says, I want you to taste it. I want you to sense it in your heart. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays for the Christians at Ephesus, and he prays that the Spirit would give them enormous strength in their inmost being so that they could grasp and know the height, width, breadth, and depth of the love of Christ. Now come on. There are Christians, of course, they know Christ loves them. He doesn't say, I want you to know this in your mind. You need spiritual power to grasp and sense it's one thing to say I believe God is XYZ it's another thing to sense his holiness that's another thing altogether to sense that power in your heart you haven't really met God unless both your mind and your heart are engaged do you believe in God or have you actually met him he is a God who can be known. In fact, even when Moses says, tell me your name, you say, what do you mean, tell me your name? He's God. Well, the Hebrew word translated God in the Bible is Elohim. And it's not really a name, it's a title. The word God tells you what he is, but when he says, I am that I am, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh. The name that was too holy to pronounce for Israelites. And that is who he is. He's saying, I'm telling you my name. And if you want to have a personal relationship with someone, it's important to know their name. Somebody comes up to you and says, Mr. This or Mr. That or Professor or Dr. This. And you say, hey, call me Tim. Just call me Tim. And you give them your name. And it's your way of saying, I want to have more than just a professional. I want a personal relationship with you. And that's what God is doing here. He's real. He's the ground of all being. But he's also a God who can be known. And this leads us to another thing. God is a God who seeks after his people. He's a seeking God. Notice, for example, that he's seeking Moses. It says in verse 2, The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the flames of fire within the bush. Moses saw the bush that it didn't burn, so Moses thought, let me go over there. God is drawing Moses in. He's drawing him. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from the bush. God wants a relationship here. He's seeking Moses. And yet... Even though Moses is attracted and drawn in, there's another side. God says, do not come closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Here's what you have in this passage. You again have the fire, and the fire tells us something else we need to know about God, and this is really compelling. The fire is both beautiful and attractive and fatal. It is beautiful, it is attractive, and it's fatal. There are certain situations which if you don't get near fire, you're going to die. Fire in one sense is life-giving because you need the heat. But if you get too close, fire will kill you. Fire is life-giving and death-dealing at the same time. It is attractive and dangerous and frightening at the same time. And that is why this is so brilliant of God to appear as fire. When he appears as fire, he is showing us who he is. Listen, no matter who you are or what you do for a living or what you think, if you take this insight I'm about to give you, which is one of the fundamental insights of the Bible, it will help you understand human life better than 
anything else you've ever understood before. That's a big claim, isn't it? We can't live with God, and we can't live without God. That's the human condition. We can't live without Him because we were created for Him, and we want Him in our deepest heart of hearts. But at another level, we're quite broken. We've turned away from Him, and His very presence is threatening and traumatic and fatal. And so the Bible repeatedly says the immediate presence of God is fatal to human beings, just, as, uh, just like fire. Moses says, show me your glory, and God says, I can't, it'll kill you. Isaiah goes to see God high and lifted up in the temple, and he says, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm falling apart. I feel like I'm dead on the spot. God comes down on Mount Sinai and says, I'm coming down on Mount Sinai in fire, by the way, if you remember. And he says, don't touch anything because if you touch the mountain, you will die. Now let me aggravate every English teacher in the room because I'm going to mix a metaphor here. We're going to move away from fire for a second. I had three English teachers in my second church in Mississippi and I would get little notes after each message. And I said, well, I can't bother myself with English grammar. I'm learning Hebrew and Greek. I far transcended all that. And by the way, when you have a southern accent, you can't speak English grammar anyway. <laughs> so don't bother me with such trivia. But they love to do it. And I listen to them sometimes. But I have the microphone, so let me go ahead. All human beings are naturally oriented toward ourself. The most natural impulse in my life is to please myself. It's much more natural than to try to please somebody else rather than yourself. That's hard. That calls for sacrifice. To please yourself, it's called self-indulgence, is quite natural. Self-sacrifice is unnatural. We are natural-born, self-centered people. The human heart, therefore, wants everything to orbit around it. I want to be the star of the show. If that's the case, then when we go and get into contact with God, who is the true center of the universe, around which everything in your life ought to orbit, in other words, you have two solar systems coming together, two centers, and all these planets revolving around, and they're going to crash. They're going to clash. It's going to be traumatic. There's going to be an explosion. It's the reason why the Bible says over and over again, flawed human beings cannot exist in the presence of God. The holiness of God is fatal. Well, then here's the question. Here you have a God who wants Moses, a God of compassion. Now in verses 7 and 8, he says, I hear the cries of my people. I want to be with you. I want to go with you. He's seeking Moses. He loves his people. He wants to be with Moses. And yet he says to Moses, don't get too close. Moses is terrified. He's scared. He's trembling. So how can we have a holy God and have a relationship with sinful people like us? How can Moses draw near to a holy God? And here's why many commentators say if you've actually read all of Genesis and Exodus and then you read this passage, if you put this passage in the context of Genesis and Exodus, here's the real question. The big question is not why is the bush not being consumed. The big question is why is Moses not being consumed? How could Moses get that close and not be consumed. I don't know why this thought occurred to me, but I think of Moses approaching the bush, and in the south in the summertime, everybody's got these bug zappers. You know what they are? They hang them out on the patio, and about the time the sun goes down, you just hear them crunch and boom, zap, burr, 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 burr. Well, I don't know what kind of noise it makes, but it goes on and on. I'm awaiting someday for some insectologist, whatever you call them, to show up and plead for the rights of the insects that were hurting the birds or something. But if you've ever sat outside in the summer, in the south, in the humidity with a bug zapper, you're grateful for it. But I was wondering why Moses just didn't get zapped. 
by the holy presence of God in that bush. How did he live to tell about it? How did he live to write about it? And here's the answer. It's the angel. Now I'm going to take you through some deep waters and you need to listen fast because we don't have all day. It is extremely easy to miss because you kind of swing by it really quickly. Verse 2 is a summary sentence. And you know how journalists, at least real ones, are taught to make the very first sentence a kind of summary sentence of what the news article is going to be about and the rest of the article is essentially unpacking of that summary sentence. If you look at verse 2, what does verse 2 say? It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Then starting in verse 3, it goes on to say, it says, Moses saw it and he went over and he spoke. What is interesting is up there it says the angel of the Lord was in the bush. But all through the rest of the passage it says, the Lord was in the bush. The Lord spoke to him from the bush. He was afraid to look on the Lord. Here's the question. Was it the angel of the Lord in the bush, or was it the Lord in the bush? And the right answer is yes. I'm thankful to the scholar Alec Motier, who spent his whole life teaching Isaiah, wrote a classical commentary on it. This is where I get this from him. He says, there are at least a dozen times in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament in which the angel of the Lord shows up. The angel of the Lord is unlike any other angel. The angel of the Lord, on the one hand, seems identical to the Lord and at the same time seems to be distinct from the Lord. All through the rest of the Bible, you have lots of other angels, but whenever the other angels show up, they speak for the Lord. Gabriel shows up. He's probably the most famous angel in all the Bible. He shows up to Mary and says to her, Blessed are you. You're going to give birth to a child. And when Gabriel speaks, he says, This is what the Lord says. When any other angel shows up, the angel always says, This is what the Lord says. Every other angel speaks for the Lord. But when the angel of the Lord speaks, it is the Lord. Radically radically different so you have this really strange situation in which the angel of the Lord on the one hand seems to be identical with the Lord when the angel of the Lord says something the Lord says something on the other hand and in another sense it is a distinct person from the Lord even though that's very mysterious Motier points out that the angel of the Lord is a way that God continually solves this problem for example, do you remember how Moses said at one point, show me your glory, and God says, I can't, it would kill you, it would consume you. Moses gets into an argument with God in that same couple of chapters. He says, I really want you to come with us. I want your glory presence to come with us as the children of Israel go into the promised land. And God keeps saying, I can't go with you because you're rebellious hoodlums and thugs, basically. He said, I can't go with you. I can't go with you. I, but Moses keeps asking. Moses keeps saying, you have to come with us. I need your presence. I need your presence. God says, if I came with you, I would destroy you. My presence will consume you. Moses says, I have to come. God says, no, it will kill you. Then suddenly in Exodus 32, around verse 24, God says, I will send my angel. And it solves a problem. Alec Motier says something like this, The angel of the Lord is revealed as a merciful accommodation of God, whereby the Lord can be present among a sinful people when, when were he to go with them himself, his presence would consume them. The angel suffers no reduction or adjustment of his full deity, yet he is that person whereby the holy God can keep company with sinners. Do you see that? Please come with us. No, it will kill you. I'll tell you what, I'll send my angel. The angel is the mode of deity whereby the holy God can keep company with sinners. That's not modalism, by the way. I know what modalism is. Don't tell me it's modalism. This happens again and again in the Bible. 
Let me give you an example of it. Well, I just gave you one where the angel of the Lord came to lead the children of Israel. There's also a place that the angel of the Lord comes to Hagar after she's been kicked out of Abraham's household and goes out into the desert and is ready to dehydrate and die, and the angel of the Lord appears to her. And they don't deserve any help, but he does it. Now here's the question. Is it possible that the angel, or that through the angel, God came near to people and helped people who don't deserve his presence and otherwise would be consumed by his holiness? Some of you are saying, whenever you're preaching on the Old Testament at this point, you usually say, this reminds us of somebody. This points us to somebody. But I'm not going to do that because this is the somebody. Alec Motier says about the angel of the Lord, there is only one other person in the Bible who is both identical with, yet distinct from the Lord, one who without abandoning the full essence and prerogatives of deity or diminishing the divine holiness is able to accommodate himself to the company of sinners who while affirming the wrath of God is yet a supreme display of his outreaching mercy. The angel of the Lord cannot be understood except as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. Amen. That is why Moses was saved at the burning bush. This is Jesus Christ before he was born as a human being. Now, let's answer the question, how can the angel of the Lord be the means by which Moses can draw near without being consumed? And how can God draw near to people like Hagar and Abraham and Sarah and save them without being consumed, here's how it can be done. Because centuries later, the angel was born into this world and he became the son of a very poor virgin woman. And at the end of his life, he was rejected by his father too. He was crying out in thirst. He was dying, but nobody answered him. Do you know why? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, he was getting the abandonment we deserved. He was being consumed by the divine wrath and justice that Moses deserved. He was getting the punishment for sins that we deserved so that if you believe in Jesus Christ, he becomes your angel of the Lord and you can draw near to the uh, God. In fact, not just draw near to God, God can indwell you with his beauty and power and you will not be consumed. Amen. I don't know if you know how big a blessing that is. And I don't know if you've ever really wrestled with the conundrum of how sinful people like you and I can, can have a close, intimate relationship with God in which we can say we really know Him and we want to know Him more. And if you think, well, you know, Pastor Tim, I love you and all that, but you're pressing things here. No, I'm not. In John chapter 8, verse 58, when Jesus Christ is talking to his critics, he says something that's like throwing a bomb. He says, before Abraham was, what? I am. I am. That's what he says. Before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. No. He deliberately invokes his name. He says, before Abraham was ever born. I am. And everybody was amazed. They tried to stone him. Not with pot, with big rocks. They understood what he meant. I am the angel who was speaking to Moses from the burning bush. In the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus is the second in the great I am, the God of heaven and earth. This leads us to just this. God sends Moses out now, and we can spend some time on what it means to be sent. We don't have to look at Moses and see how God changed Moses and made him a person of God he could use in the world. We actually already have what God says when he says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, how do we worship this God? How do we worship this God? Well, the book of Hebrews, and uh, I'm probably going to have to preach another message on this. You know, make it last forever. And in heaven, you'd really enjoy it. Right now, you're... Because I know I used to sit out there. <laughs> but the gospel gives us a, a better revelation than what Moses saw at the burning bush. 
The gospel invites us to draw near to God and to live upon his mountain in the city he has prepared. It, it also, it's also true that God's holiness places an eternal distinction between the creature and the creator. Verse 29 reminds us of Exodus 3 in Hebrews chapter 12 where Moses saw the fire in the bush. The imagery of God as a raging fire speaks of his holiness and the reverent fear with which we must always entreat him. You cannot take God lightly. There's always that tension in real worship between intimacy and awe. I can be awed by something but not have intimacy with it. And I can be intimate with something but not be awed by it at all. But when I come to worship the Lord, I should be awestruck at who it is that I am spending time with. And yet I can have the closest possible... I have union with Christ. I am united to Him. Like flesh and blood and bones. I am His and He is mine. The biblical author says... But I can't come in here in a cavalier sort of casual sort of loosey-goosey fashion. I need to take seriously who it is that we worship. Yet at the same time, we have the closest fellowship with Him. Remember the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, that's intimacy. Who is in heaven? That's all. And that is the God with whom we have to do. Finally, and in closing, this truth is famously depicted by C.S. Lewis in his Narnia series of children's fantasies. And Lewis uses the figure of Aslan, the giant and majestic lion, to depict the Lord. At one point, one of his heroines, the adventurous girl Jill, comes upon a stream of water She's been lost and she's dying of thirst, but as she comes forward, she spies the lion sitting calmly before the water. Terrified, she stops in her tracks and the lion invites her, if you're thirsty, come and drink. Dying of thirst and drawn by the rippling gurgle of the stream, the girl steps a bit forward. Then she says, will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? I make no promise, says the lion. Drawn closer by the refreshing sounds of waters, she wonders aloud, do you eat little girls? I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. Jill recoils at this, concluding, I daren't come and drink. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, cries Jill, drawn yet a step closer by her need of refreshment. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. But the lion responds, there is no other stream. There is no other stream. If you're going to have the thirst of your soul filled by the waters of eternal life, you're going to have to deal with God as a consuming fire. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you today for your word. It is alive and powerful and true and sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray that it would convict us and encourage us and lift us up and give us life and correct our lives and reprove us and draw us to you and blossom forth in us as fruit. So, Lord, we pray all of these things because that is the kind of God you are. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving sinners. And for doing what you've done on our behalf, we are overwhelmed with gratitude. Now may we continue to worship you as we give of our tithes and offerings, and may we do so to your glory. Amen.